Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, much like Denzel Washington, I, I brought an entourage um, from Seapoint with me, which is great. Denzel's entourage was five people, I just want to let you know. Three trailers, five people, that is my memory of him. Um, compared to Ryan Reynolds, one and one on those, on those counts, Denzel was winning. Um, but it's such a privilege to be here. My wife was going to come, but she's engaged with some Kids Rock uh, stuff at, at church in Seapoint this morning. Um, but it is a massive privilege, and there's some familiar faces. I probably wouldn't be at uh, Common Ground Seapoint if Esche hadn't given me a false prophetic word um, one night. <laughs> we were exploring, coming over, and he just said, yes, I got this picture of a point and a sea. <laughs> steward that with Jesus. Steward that with Jesus. So, anyways, no, it's good to be here. We... Um, I've realized, this is the first time I've been in your venue, which is amazing, um, but we, I feel like we've got a good um, transaction program going with you guys. We've received some really great people, and I feel like we've released some really great people, and then they've come and they've had babies here in the last three weeks, which is fantastic. <laughs> so, um, you guys know what you're doing, um, but uh, if you don't mind, let's just jump into this, um, just because there's a lot to cover, and I want to do my best to um, get, get through it. Um, so, let me start by saying... The idea today is just to sketch a, a bunch of stuff for us. We're not going to be able to get into... You're going to feel like you've gotten into the weeds of stuff, and I promise you, we wouldn't have even plumbed the depths of this conversation. Um, but hopefully we can have a, a good idea of what we're talking about, where we're at when we come to this topic or these topics of transgender and intersex. And, um, and it's going to be unlike a normal Sunday sermon. I can just tell you that. Um, there's going to be so much here that's going to feel like a lecture because there's so much just basics, in a sense that we need to cover before we can even understand what Jesus might even say on the topic. So I just want to say, strap your seatbelts on. We're going to cover a lot. And let me kick off by saying this, um, that we are talking here today about both people and concepts, not one or the other. And I just want us to um, bear, bear that in mind. We're grappling with both. We're trying to understand, as Christ follows, we're trying to understand our neighbors, our friends, our family, their struggles, their stories, their worldviews, and we're also trying to understand God's world, the world that he has made. How do we honor God in this world? How do we live wisely and wonderfully in this world and as one of his creatures? And how do we live in ways that he's designed human beings to flourish? Um, so it's people and concepts, people and concepts. And there might be people in the room today grappling with some of these issues personally. You might identify as transgender. You might have an intersex condition. Um, if you're not one of those, I bet there's a lot of people here who have friends, family members for who this is quite a live issue and the conversation is close to home. So um, let me just say, whoever is here, much like Gareth's already said, whoever is here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, I hope that we can serve you in some shape or form today. And the big way that I hope we can serve you is by answering this question, which is what does love look like? What does love look like? I'm trusting that as Christ follows, we, we recognize that love is, is God's response to everything. But love is not a... I've messed up my mic already, guys. Sorry. Um, love is not just a generic, airy-fairy word that we throw out and just put on things. Love has to tangibly um, do things and respond to things and act in certain ways. And so that's what we want to try to figure out today together. And so 
Where are we going? Here is, um, here's where we're going for the rest of the talk. I'm going to throw out a few quick definitions, um, but the majority of our time will probably be spent having a look at the lay of the land, um, trying to figure out people's experiences, various activists, scholars, and worldviews that are at play. And the worldviews are going to really come into play, and Gareth is already, I think it was you who spoke on this right at the beginning of the series, and you'll see why that really comes, um, comes to bear on today's, on today's topic. And then we kind of, kind of look at those worldviews, the postmodern story, the Jesus story, and then our response and how we respond to various individuals in various groups. And we, what we, the big thing we don't want to do today is lump a whole bunch of people into one big group, like is often the case. And so, with your permission, let's go. Um, some quick definitions. Um, and again, you don't, have to disagree, you don't have to agree with the definitions here. The idea is just to be able to have some common language um, to understand the conversation where it's at. So, quick definitions. Number one, sex. Um, biologically, are you male or female? That's typically how the word sex is used in this conversation. Um, it is distinct from gender. Uh, gender is typically talking about your internal sense of self. So not what you are biologically or who you are biologically, but who you experience or feel yourself to be internally. And gender is broken up into, in a sense, two different categories, um, one that leads to another. You've got gender identity, which is how we feel in relation to our biological sex. That's regarding whether we feel masculine, feel feminine. And then there is gender expression. So your identity is then expressed in a certain way. It's the external manifestation of our gender identity, how we express our gender through a whole bunch of things, including appearance, clothing, hairstyle, choices, mannerisms, um, and in some cases, uh, surgery, like we'll, we'll get into just now. The last definition, um, obviously there'll be more definitions as we go, but the last one is cisgender. Um, cisgender essentially is a person would be called cisgendered if their biological sex matches up with their internal sense of self. So you would call me a cisgendered man. I'm someone who is biologically male, who also identifies as a man, um, I, that my gender matches my sex, if that makes sense. That's, that's what cisgender is in contrast to transgender, which we'll get to now. It's going to feel very academic, but we're all going to get through this together, okay? So, here's the lay of the land. Let's get into it now. And I'm going to pop a diagram up here. Um, We've been basically swapping diagrams around the city and building on each other's diagrams. And so this is version number three now um, that I edited from Ian Kruger, who edited my original. So we're, we're, good, we're doing well. Um, let's just make sense of this. In the center column, we've got people's life experiences when it comes to this conversation. And you'll see I've separated three groups of people, intersex, those with gender dysphoria, and those with rapid onset gender dysphoria. We'll get into those definitions just now. Um, they're in the center, those people's life experiences. On the left and the right of those are people who are interacting with them, trying to serve them, and there are people that, people in the middle, are looking to for help, wisdom, guidance, next steps. These would be activists, um, uh, political figures, doctors, academics, biologists, pastors, etc. Could have family members in there. Um, on the far outskirts, you've got the, the worldviews, the ideas, the ideologies that would be influencing the people who are then trying to serve those who are having the experiences. I hope this, this is helpful and makes sense. So on the far left, we'll get into that later, is the sort of postmodern secular worldview. On the far right is the, essentially the Christian worldview. I do want to say this, that you could fit a whole bunch of other worldviews there on the right. For the sake of our context and conversation, I'm just putting the Christian worldview up there. But 
what I want you to know from the outset is that most of the stuff that I could share today doesn't necessarily exclusively have to come from a Christian worldview. There are a multitude of scholars, activists, you name it, that would be countering a lot of the voices, the loudest voices, that would be coming from that side. Um, and so I want to be very clear that this is not Christians versus the rest of the world on this topic. It's portrayed like that often, but that's not how it is. There is actually a, a, a much smaller group who's very loud, to which there's a whole bunch of other groups, peoples, all sorts of cultures, including mainstream Christianity, who would offer some, some counter-opinions to, to what's being said. So I just hope that's helpful as, a, as an explanatory uh, thing straight off the bat. So what I want to do now first is just explore um, this, this, this middle column here, life experiences. Um, and these, remember, are not just categories now. The ideas that we spoke about on the, on the outskirts, what we're talking about right now are people and people's experiences. So the first is intersex. Intersex is, is the I in LGBTQIA+. This is what the I is in that um, list of letters. I don't know what you call it, that group or whatever. Um, so uh, what we're going to do straight off the bat is separate this group out from the other two. And I'll explain why um, as, we, as we go through it. But what is intersex? Essentially, it is um, roughly 16 medical conditions where a person is born with one or more sort of atypical features in their sexual anatomy or chromosomes. Um, they've got differences or disorders when it comes to sex development. And about 1.7% of the population are intersex, which when you think of it off the bat, that actually sounds quite high. That's quite a, that's quite a high number of people. Um, but, and that number is used a lot by scholars on, on, on that side there to, to make a lot of claims. But the truth is 99% of that 1.7 um, are certainly either male or female. Um, there's not um, a massive amount of confusion if this person is biologically male or biologically female. Um, and the other 0.017%, the percentage now has gotten a lot smaller, are in some senses, could be said, are, are both male and female. There's just not clarity in some ways if this person is biologically male or biologically female. Unless you, of course, change the definition of biological sex entirely, which, which some are trying. Um, now, we've seen the, the complexity and we've seen the, the difficulty of this with our very own Carter Semenya here in South Africa. Um, we know the, the controversy, the uncertainty, and all sorts of levels of pain, empathy required. Um, so we know this, and this is, this is what we're talking about here when we're chatting around intersex. I want to say this very clearly here, and this is why I want to separate this group out from the rest of the conversation. Um, is that the majority, the vast majority, I don't want to say all, um, but the vast majority of intersex people don't see their condition as evidence of gender fluidity or sexual fluidity um, or have a sense of disconnect between their gender identity and their body. So here's the Intersex Society of North America. I'll just point you to them and you can go and check out a whole bunch of other things they say, but this is one of the things they wrote. We're often asked why ISNA doesn't forcefully advocate for genderless society. At ISNA, we've learned that many intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity and are not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member of a quote-unquote third gender class. And it's important to say that up front because in, from what I've seen, and many people will agree with me, um, activists 
from the postmodern side will often use intersex people um, to further their agenda, to, to further the, their, their, their push for a genderless society, and we'll, we'll get there just now. But lumping your average intersex person into the same category as others in this conversation, I think is to serve and uphold ideological beliefs, um, and I think can actually use people and not love people, and you can't do both at the same time. And we're trying to figure out here how we love people um, and not just use people. And so what does love look like? What does love look like when it comes to someone who has an intersex condition? Um, their genitalia is unclear, they've got, you know, they might have a whole bunch of various confused organs inside. The interesting thing about intersex conditions is most people often don't discover they've got intersex conditions either A, until they try and have children and they realize they're infertile and further tests are done, sometimes even on people's, in people's autopsies, they're discovered. So there could be a multitude of people even in this room today who have an intersex condition and you don't know it. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, know, you will be infertile, etc. You just don't necessarily know it. How do we love someone who clearly is intersex? I think it's quite simple in its phraseology. And I'll say it to you now if you're here in the room. God loves you. We love you. Tell us what it's like to be you. I don't think it needs to be too much more complicated than that um, because um, it's, a complex, it's a complex situation that you find ourselves in and we want to bring massive amounts of compassion and grace and serve you where, where you're at in a condition that you are probably not going to be able to, to, to get yourself out of the side of the grave. And so that's almost all I'm going to say on, on the intersex condition. There is probably much more I could say, but I, as again, we've only got a limited amount of time. So let's keep moving. I'm going to talk about now, um, get the definition of transgender out there. You're not going to see it on the screen, but essentially transgender is a, uh, an umbrella term that could capture a lot of people in these life experiences of the three that are, that are labeled here. So it's an umbrella term for the diverse ways that, that people might experience um, or express their gender identities um, differently to those whose sense of gender identity matches their biological sex, okay? That's what, that's what transgender essentially means. Now, it used to just be basically a male identifying as a female, um, but now there is basically an almost unlimited number of gender identities because of um, the fact that gender is now a spectrum and people are pushing for biological sex to be a spectrum. It's opened up a whole bunch of things. So you will find people identifying as pangender, bigender, genderqueer, genderfluid, agender, libragender. The list could go on. I'm not even going to try to define a lot of those, but you can Google them. You can find them. Um, and transgender people, um, people who identify as trans, um, will typically transition. They will move from their biological sex and start to um, express their identity through transitioning. And that will typically happen in two ways. Number one is socially transitioning. You'll start to cut your hair differently, um, wear different clothes, whatever it is, to identify as either the opposite sex or as some sort of non-binary, um, genderless person. And then you could move from being socially transitioning to medically transitioning, okay? You'll take puberty blockers, you'll take cross-sex hormones. If you're a woman, you can have top surgery to remove both your breasts, um, and, and you can have complete sex reassignment surgery. I hope there was a content warning before I got up here. I just thought about this right now. You gave one for Wednesday. Uh, we should probably have one for this. Um, explicit content, parental, parental advice put out there. Okay. Um, 
Now, let's chat about these two groups of people because typically it's in these two groups that people would identify as trans. So what is gender dysphoria and what do people who have gender dysphoria experience? Gender dysphoria is the psychological term, it's the current psychological term, for people who experience a disconnect between their biological sex and their internal sense of self. And this is not, I wanna, I wanna be clear, this is not a, a choice or a fad here, this is people who genuinely feel isolated and disconnected from the body that they live in. And I just wanna ask us, just as an exercise of compassion for a moment, um, just, just put yourself in, in that mindset. Um, put yourself in that headspace. Imagine spending large chunks of your life feeling alienated from your body that you carry around with you 24-7. Some describe it like a constant, nauseating electric current passing through them. That's how they, ex that's how they experience and express gender dysphoria. Man, there's something just completely wrong here. I am not who I feel like I am. I don't know what's going on. Now, when it comes to gender dysphoria, and we could have maybe called this early onset gender dysphoria, um, the majority of kids who have this, and it's typically found historically in children, um, the majority who have it pass through it, especially by the time they get to puberty. The overwhelming vast majority of, of people who have early onset gender dysphoria, they start to experience it when they're young, are boys, um, typically around age three to four is when it arrives, um, and for upwards of 70%, it passes within the next six to eight years, okay, so before puberty. Now, this is huge, historically, gender dysphoria afflicted a very, very small, small fraction of the population, roughly 0.01%, uh, and almost exclusively in boys. I'm gonna keep saying this because the data goes crazy in a moment. Before 2012, in fact, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 ever having developed gender dysphoria at all, before 2012. No doubt there was, there was probably some, but this was, it was so unrecorded compared to everything else that was documented and studied. Now, what you'll find is people who have persistent gender dysphoria, they will perhaps socially transition, they will uh, medically transition, What's huge to, to know is there is a lot of people now, and it's been happening since the 70s, but it's been happening a lot in the last 10 years, is there are a lot of people who are choosing to detransition. They've realized that um, they were told that this was uh, transitioning, especially medically, was gonna be the answer to fixing their dysphoria, and it just wasn't. And so many, 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 many people, I don't say hundreds of thousands, but certainly hundreds and thousands, have detransitioned back to their biological sex. Unfortunately though, for unfortunately though, for many of them, there has been irreversible damage. And if you go and read or listen to what happens to your internal organs when you've been taking cross-sex hormones, uh, it is, it is, um, it's frightening to actually see what happens. Um, and so there's been irreversible damage, but they, they have moved back. But the gory details are horrifying. So that's gender dysphoria, a very, very real condition. But I wanna separate it out now from something that we could call rapid onset gender dysphoria. Because what I just spoke about here, um, and in terms of the statistics, has radically changed in the last couple of years, in the last 10 years. Uh, the Western world has seen a massive sudden surge of adolescents claiming to have gender dysphoria and self-identifying as transgender. Uh, we've probably seen this. You've seen it on the news. You've probably seen it in your schools. Um, around 10 years ago, 
Um, it was about one in 10,000 people who identified as trans. In the last 10 years, America has had an increase of over 1,000% of that. The UK, over 4,000%, with now over 2% of high schoolers in the UK identifying as trans. And I think we are on our way to that here in South Africa, particularly in the Western Cape. We're seeing similar trends. I know of people in, in the Western Cape in high schools who say in their, either in their grade or in their friendship group, they are the only person who could identify as cisgendered and straight. Everyone else is part of the LGBTQIA community. They are the, in a sense, they are the sexual minority in their, in their peer group. Here's an interesting fact. For the first time in medical history, teenage girls are not only present amongst those identifying, they constitute the majority. Clinics in Sweden, Toronto, and Amsterdam reported that their ratios of gender dysphoria had flipped from predominantly males prior to 2006 to predominantly females from 2006 to 2013, and that information has just kept on going in that direction. In 2016, females accounted for 46% of all sex reassignment surgeries in the United States. One year later, 2017, it was 70%. 70%. What's more interesting or concerning, depending on who you are and where you're at, is that the majority of these cases are people who previously had shown no signs of gender dysphoria. These are not people who had early onset gender dysphoria when they were children, which is why I think it is very clear that they should be separated out um, and, and, and we chat about two separate groups here. And this is what's become known as, as rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, and uh, Dr. Lisa Littman, she was the person that coined that phrase. Uh, she did a massive amount of research, and other people have since done that. Um, there's been pushback to her and a whole bunch of academic controversy where they took down her papers because uh, certain academics didn't like them, but they had to re-put them back up. Um, but regardless of what you, what, what, how you interpret the data, we have to just deal with the facts. The data is there. No matter what you call it, no matter how you want to slice it up of why these things are happening, you have to acknowledge something has been injected into the system. Something has radically shifted. Um, what could it be? There are some ideas. It could be an increased acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community um, and those sorts of issues, and that may have initially caused um, an increase in people coming out and being open about their gender dysphoria. Um, you know, they felt more comfortable to do that. That could be true, but again, what we're seeing is completely against the historical trend of who is suffering from that condition. It doesn't explain why the demographic has shifted, and it doesn't explain this interesting fact, that in majority of cases of teenage girls coming out as trans, it's not happening, happening in isolated instances, it's happening in peer groups. Entire clusters of people who are friends are coming out as transgender. It's an interesting thing to think about. And you have to ask the question, what has been injected into the system? And Lisa Littman and Abigail Schreier and, I mean, why name, there's about 100 people I could name here, pretty much suggest this, that this is essentially a social contagion or a craze. That's possibly the best way to describe what we're currently seeing. And it's the combination of several social forces that have essentially um, catalyzed a cultural enthusiasm that's now being passed on through peer influence, inspiration, social media, entertainment, and activism. And this is essentially what is happening in our schools in the Western Cape. And we are far behind where things are in America. But for those of us who are no longer in high school or out of our 20s, um, you might remember that peer pressure was quite a thing when you were in high school. Um, let's just remember that. And so just imagine the 
change in social currents and what that would do for current peer pressure. You add onto that a whole bunch of other things. Um, you've got uh, the rise of the smartphone, you've got the ability for people to go down um, algorithmed rabbit holes on YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, you name it, for hours at a time. The emotional age of Gen Z compared to millennials, and I'm a millennial, we weren't exactly put out there as the, 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 the emotionally mature generation, um, but Gen Z is typically three to four years younger emotionally than that of the millennials. Over 50% of the people in Dr. Lippmann's survey said their dysphoria was linked to poor mental health. So there's a correlation here, a strong correlation here. You add to all of this um, a whole host of extremely trendy, captivating TikTok, YouTube influencers who can literally disciple you and walk you through the process of how to access cross-sex hormones as a 14-year-old, to how to um, not tell your parents and get around the system, to how to uh, wear uh, breast braces to, to squash your breasts, to uh, you know, what hormones to take, and eventually all the way through to full medical transition. You can be guided on that journey. This is just simply where we are. This is just where we are. We haven't even brought, we haven't even brought in the worldviews, how do we deal with this, where do we move? This is just simply the lay of the land and in many ways, the facts of the matter. Um, we've got many discipleship challenges ahead of us in the Christian church um, for the next generation coming up, from social media in general to mental health in general to how both of those things weigh in on this particular conversation. So what we're going to do next is we've, and I hope, this is, I hope this has been helpful and a little clear. Some of you might be like, oh my gosh, you've just thrown everything at me. I don't even know what you're talking about. But um, hopefully we can understand at least the life perspective that, we, that we're talking about here. What I want to do now is go across to, to the wings, essentially, um, and just look at the ideas, the ideologies, the worldviews that are influencing people that are trying to help and serve those who are in these life experiences. And the people that um, intersex, gender dysphoria, um, and people who would identify as trans in general are going to for help. And so we're going to quickly look at the postmodern secular story. There's a whole, as I say, there's, 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 these are not the only two worldviews in the world, but this is the main one, and this is by far the loudest one, and if you've heard anything on this topic, I'll guarantee you 100 rand you've probably heard from this particular worldview, or people influenced by this worldview. Um, so postmodern secularism. Um, secularism essentially means um, uh, no God, no spirituality, and essentially we're in a, in a, in a time of atheistic evolution, um, we believe that there's no creator, human beings have evolved, and there's no ultimate purpose and meaning to um, our lives. We are um, happy or unhappy accidents, um, and that's where we are. So that's secularism, and you don't need to be a postmodern to believe that, but um, you could combine that with postmodernism, which is what many in our culture are doing or have done. What is postmodernism? Let me just quickly throw out three um, tenets or four tenets of postmodernism. They're not the only ones. But essentially, postmodernism has a massive skepticism towards objective reality and objective truth. Um, you know, and we hear this kind of thing all the time. Oh, of course you'd say that. You're a dot, dot, dot. Meaning, no one can ever really know objective truth. It's only your opinion from your sort of social standpoint and my social standpoint, um, and your culture and my culture, but there's no ways to actually get at what is objective reality. That's, that's postmodernism. Postmodernism believes that language, in a sense, constructs knowledge. 
So everything is culturally constructed because th there is no real objective reality, and if there is, we can't get to it because everyone is constructing reality for themselves. Your culture says this, my culture says this, and who are we to disagree or, or elevate one over another? We're all just culturally constructing things with our knowledge um, and with the way we speak about things. Um, everything's socially constructed in this conversation. Gender, even sex, is socially constructed according to some. Um, and to change reality and to move things forward um, or to be activists, we therefore need to have a lot of control of speech and we need, to take, we need to tame our tongues in a sense. And this is where political correctness comes from. This is why we need to uplift certain voices. Um, we need to use gender pronouns. We need to change the definitions of things like marriage, racism, gender, and sex because that's the only way that we can win a battle over social constructs is to change the social constructs through language and knowledge because there's nothing actually real necessarily underneath the surface. Another tenet is this, the intentional blurring of boundaries. Postmodernism loves this. If we are to disrupt um, social constructs that people perceive as normative, then we need to do what we can to, to blur things and confuse things. A great example of this, I think, is from the, the new Thor movie that came out. Um, and in, in the new Thor movie, you have King Valkyrie except King Valkyrie is a female. They have intentionally blurred the, the distinctions of what we've historically understood as king and queen, two rulers, one male, one female. Well, we've blurred that and destroyed that boundary to disrupt the normative thing that kings have to be men. We're playing with language. The last one is the role of power in all these things. Um, if those in power control knowledge and, and the way people talk typically in cultures, um, they therefore control quote unquote reality, we need to strip those in power and give it to cultural minorities. And in this case, in our conversation, sexual minorities, the LGBTQIA plus community. So that's, you can already see how activism from a postmodern worldview would start to play itself out in schools, in marches, in um, what you need to put in your email footer underneath your name. It all starts to make a lot of sense. Now. Postmodernism is not new. It's been in our Western waters for the last 200 years, but it's kind of arrived in full first and burst out of the university in the last 10, 15 years en masse. One of the things that you'll see from the postmodern mindset, though, is when it comes to the discussion of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a self. And you could essentially say, based on what I've described postmodernism to be, is that the self has been completely psychologized the self has been completely psychologized. The mind is ultimate reality. There's no external source, there's no God, there's no book, not even the body has authority over our minds. It's our minds that construct reality and, and make social constructs. And it's led to something um, that is called personhood theory, and I'll put a little graph up here. This is what personhood theory is. Um, it's put forward by a person called Peter Singer, and, and he's a, he, he put it into words, but essentially this is what postmodernism um, believes in many ways. Um, you've got the physical body, which essentially is just raw material where, where postmodern uh, secularists, we don't believe there's a God, we just, you know, we got here by accident. So we're just raw material. There's no intrinsic purpose or identity to anything material in this world. It's all just evolutionary. But the autonomous self, that's the real person, the person that lives inside, in the heart and the mind. And that person is free to impose its own will and interpretation on the body, but also on anything it wants, really. And so Peter Singer 
would essentially say, and this is what personhood theory says in large parts of postmodernism, that to be biologically human is a fact down there, but to be a person, that's an ethical concept defined by what we value. So follow the thought here. You can be a, a human, but not a person. Because your body does not give you any identity whatsoever. Now that's a scary thought, if you think about it. That's why Peter Singer, founder of this, advocates for abortion up to three years outside the womb. So my little boy Harrison is not yet considered a person because he doesn't have the cognitive functions and the desires and the will to be able to be considered a person. It makes sense, though, when you think about it. It is consistent. Because if our bodies have no intrinsic purpose, no intrinsic meaning, and reality is all constructed in here, it totally makes sense. It's very consistent. I want to just, just say that. The core of a human being in postmodernism um, is to do what's with inside, our feelings. There's no external reality. There's no necessarily external right and wrong. We need to be ultimately led by emotional reasoning because scientific reasoning is something that's outside of us and could just be your white western construct. And this all makes a lot of sense of why people feel immense pressure in our culture and medically on this topic to conform the body to the mind rather than the mind to the body, which is what's happening. That's the overwhelming majority of um, where people are pushing in this conversation. It is consistent. It is consistent. It's consistent with what is, is called the gender-affirming view of treatment. Whatever you feel must take precedent. Even if you're under the age of 10, even if you're under the age of 5, that, may, that must take precedent because what you feel must be right, especially if you are from an oppressed category, a sexual minority. It all 100% makes perfect sense and is logical from this, from this point of view. Could you go back to the diagram just one last time? Oh, I caught myself here. There we go, I'm free. Um, what I want to show you here is these arrows. I never explained them earlier. The arrows going out from the center are the people looking for help, looking for uh, people to chat to. The arrows going in are from the worldviews to the people who are shooting those worldviews, trying to help those in the middle. When it comes to this group here, which is in many ways I would like to put before you the dominant group that we're seeing on, on campuses and high school now, those who never had a childhood uh, gender dysphoria but all of a sudden are, are being diagnosed with it, notice the pressure that's on them from this side here. The gender-affirming view coming from this worldview is seen as the only ethical solution to serve them. That is where the dominant voice, the dominant narrative is coming. There's almost silence from fear and a whole bunch of things that's unable to speak coming from, from that side there. Clinicians, even in the city of Cape Town, Kretoskira and elsewhere, are pressurizing parents to say if their kids are wrestling with gender dysphoria, identifying as trans, people are putting immense pressure on parents, saying to them they must medically transition Otherwise, otherwise, they're likely to commit suicide. You are hearing that over and over and over again. Here's a classic phrase. Don't you want a living daughter rather than a dead son? The problem is, and it comes back to something we mentioned earlier, is that most people with gender dysphoria, genuine gender dysphoria, also check 
boxes for one or other, one or other more mental health issues. It doesn't seem to be an only child. Um, autism is huge when it comes to also having gender dysphoria, or maybe I should say it the other way around. A lot of people who have gender dysphoria also have autism and many other things. And suicide is not necessarily directly linked to the issue of having gender dysphoria. But it is a popular way to be able to push people through to transition if that's what you want. People aren't even being properly diagnosed. You read some of the stories coming out of the States. I don't know, there hasn't been enough research and literature done here in South Africa, so excuse me for leaning on that. Um, but people aren't even diagnosing mental health issues properly. People are just saying, you feel some sort of disconnect um, and someone told you you might have gender dysphoria, you've got gender dysphoria, here's hormone blockers and here's some cross-sex hormones. It is so easy. Kids in, kids in high school in the States are able to access cross-sex hormones without the approval of parents. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is pushed here out of a gender-affirming, um, quote-unquote, care for people suffering in this demographic. Now, you've got some academics and activists who are taking this worldview, and they have popularized it in the last 10 years. Our university campuses have been pumping this stuff out um, in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, uh, there's a, a, a massive umbrella of studies called critical theory, and, it's, and that's essentially applied postmodernism. Underneath that, you'll have a whole bunch of things. Gender studies is often one of them. One of our guys in the car today was telling us how he, he took that class when he was in varsity. Another one is queer studies or queer theory. Um, and queer theorists and activists are those who are, who are pushing loudly in a whole bunch of areas, um, and it's them that's claiming the existence of intersex people prove that there is a biological spectrum of sex, not a sex binary. Again, this is a, this is a, this is a social studies thing, but it's pushing its way into science. The leading queer theorist is um, someone called Judith Butler. She is a lesbian, um, and she has not been quiet about her agenda. She simply put it like this back in the 90s. The real enemy that we're fighting against is natural, read biological, heterosexual norms. Judith Butler and queer theories, just, I'm not even gonna, they're not even gonna, they're not hiding it. Agenda is to disrupt and dismantle any sense of biological norms, uh, what they would call heteronormativity, um, uh, and of course, the, the traditional views of the family, marriage, anything like that. Um, they would even go as far as to say that gender identity need not be rooted in biology at all, um, which essentially makes it a complete free-for-all. And so we'll, we'll get there, but yeah, they've completely disconnect gender from, from sex, essentially. Let me just make some comments uh, before we kind of wrap up the postmodern thing. I want to play out a few more scenarios, and then we will we'll get to Jesus. Um, but thank, thank, thank God for Jesus. Um, but here's just a few comments. Um, I could make a whole bunch more, but just a few reflections on, on what we've heard. Um, number one, in this view, if, the, if, if you're saying, man, uh, you're changing the definition of sex, you're saying it's not male or female, it's a complete spectrum, what you're actually doing is you're... you're you're leaving no room for a wide variety of males and females, men and women. Essentially, how they're breaking up um, a sex binary and saying it's a spectrum is by all sorts of different characteristics, not just gametes, which is what actually defines you as male or female. Um, and essentially, if you don't fit almost every typical, for example, male characteristic, then you aren't truly male or a man, you're somewhere further down the spectrum. 
So there's, there's basically not, not very many real men or real women in the world according, according to this definition. And this is, this, is what, this is what Judith Butler and many others are putting forward. Second comment is this. It's ironic that gender stereotypes, which feminists and many others have fought against for years, are the very things that are often used to rapidly diagnose people with gender dysphoria. It's the things of like, oh, that boy enjoys playing in that dress, or he's playing with dolls. Well, he's not just an, a gender atypical tr child, uh, or anything like that, who you know, has a wider range of interests than his peers. No, he must actually be a, a she, and let's help him move. And you, I mean, you go, you go onto TikTok, you go onto Instagram, people are, are celebrating their transition stories for their children at age three. At age three. That's just a comment. This is shattering the work of many feminists who I think rightly believe that a woman's experience is bound up with her biological experience. To be a woman is to go through a whole bunch of experiences through your life that uniquely make you a female. Gender-based violence happens for a reason. The pill wasn't a revolution for women's rights for nothing. Women's bodies, it's controversial to say in our day and age, and J.K. Rowling got destroyed for saying it, but there is something about the biological reality of being a woman that makes you a woman, and that makes your female experience female. Last comment, if, hear the logic, if sex is not binary, if it's a spectrum, and if gender is not linked to sex, there is an infinite number of genders, and gender as a concept is utterly meaningless. You could identify as absolutely anything, and that is what people are doing. There are other forms of trans identities that are coming out here and have been going out for years. But what I want to say is if you hold to this worldview, you've got no ground to stand on. They are completely valid and are completely consistent. And I want to put two before you. The images could be disturbing, and I want to say this up front. Um, so if you're tempted to be squeamish, you can, you can look away. But I think these make the point. The first person I want to introduce you to is a lady called Jewel Shooping. She'll come on the screen now. She's age 30, um, or she's probably a bit older than that now, but she had wanted to be blind from childhood. She used to describe pretending to be sightless, wearing thick, dark glasses, trying to walk around the house. By age 20, she had trained herself to read Braille fluently. At age 21, she blinded herself with drain cleaner with the help of her psychologist. And she's now, according to her, living happily as a blind woman. Her and her psychologist decided blinding her was the best way to love her. I, I think the psychologist genuinely wanted to help this person, but coming from the postmodern worldview, you need to align the body to the mind because the internal person is the true person. This next one is very disturbing. Um, we're literally talking trans species here. Um, you can act, maybe hold the photo off for a second. And um, the gentleman you're going to see is a. <laughs> did it come up? <laughs> okay, put Richard up. Uh, this was Richard Hernandez. He was a, a quite a wealthy banker, and um, he decided that he wanted to live the rest of his life as a female dragon. So he had his penis removed. He had horns implanted. He had his nose essentially surgically cut off and removed. His entire body is tattooed, and he had his tongue forked down the middle to be a dragon. And that is Richard Hernandez today. It's totally consistent. 
if you be you, who am I to judge? Then someone decided this is the best way to love Richard Hernandez. And I just want to ask the question, is denying biology, hormones, chromosomes, gametes, etc., the best way to love someone? That's the big question. Is it the best way to love someone? It's all going to come back to what meta-narrative, what worldview, what story are you living in and believing? So let's just land with the Jesus story. This is probably be the quickest part of the day. Um, as I say, the Jesus story lines up with um, many other stories today, um, at least parts of them, um, that are agreeing that there, is, that there is value and that there is something to the material world that we can't just discard. And Christians for centuries have spoken about the fact that God, in a sense, has given us two books to read and two books to study as his people. The one is his word, the scriptures, and the other is his world to study and get to know. Creation is part of God's revelation. Okay, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the glory of God. Go to the ant, you sluggard, and learn from her ways. God intends us to learn from creation. There is what we could call a teleological reality that form speaks to function. If you want to know if a hammer is a good hammer, um, use it to hit something. If you, if you use a, 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 a shot glass as a hammer, you'll soon, soon find it's not a very good hammer when you have splinters of glass in your hand. Form speaks to function. God has created human beings and designed us in a way to function in a certain way. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, would speak about offering ourselves to God, and a little later in the same passage, he would talk about offering our bodies to God as living sacrifices. In the Christian worldview, our bodies and our persons are completely linked. We're not souls that are trapped in bodies. We are embodied people. The material world is good. God created human beings in their flesh and said, it is very good. Let me just read a small extract from Jesus from Matthew 19. Jesus is fielding questions from Pharisees on divorce, and he responds, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he responds and says this, have you guys not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They head back with him, asking a bunch of questions again, and then Jesus responds with this. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Here's just a few thoughts from Jesus. Number one, in the beginning... God created them male and female, not a spectrum. And the science has, has consistently said this. We are a sexually dimorphic species. We reproduce because we have two sexes. That's, that, that, that's how, it, how it works. And human beings are physical, sacred architecture, okay? We are God's temple that he has placed in the material world, and we are his representatives who, who rule this world on his behalf, who steward creation on God's behalf. And God has set this world up in a way that order leads to flourishing. When you start collapsing distinctions in God's creation, if you collapse sky and earth and male and female, and you start transgressing boundaries across a whole bunch of different spheres, 
very shortly, chaos starts to happen. Chaos starts to happen. And that's why Moses and Paul speak specifically against things like cross-dressing. Why? Because these boundaries between male and female and those distinctions are good. And the intentional collapse of these, or the blurring, intentionally blurring of male and female, ultimately dishonors him. Because he said, I've created my image, and my image is male and female. That's how God created his representatives. In verse 12 here, Jesus speaks about people who are eunuchs from birth. Eunuchs are people, typically in the ancient world, who had their genitalia removed so they couldn't mess around with people in the king's courts. Um, but when Jesus here talks about people who are eunuchs from birth, most people agree what he's talking about here are people who are born with essentially intersex conditions. Um, there is, they don't have a fully functioning anatomy for their, for their sex in one way or another. And by Jesus saying this, he is acknowledging that there are exceptions to the rule. There are exceptions to the rule. Both are true. God created them male and female, and there are eunuchs. Biological sex is good, but we live in a fallen world, and for some people, this topic is just not that easy, biologically. Paul and Romans would say that the whole of creation itself, including our bodies, is groaning because of the fall. There are disconnects happening in all areas of life, whether it's internal, whether it's interpersonal, whether it's environmental, as well as the reality of spiritual warfare. Okay? And the conversations around us today, the cultural confusion, makes total sense of what we read in Romans 1. A society that has consistently sinned against God and God has handed them over to their sin, we have exchanged the glory of God for created things, and eventually what happens is our hearts are darkened and we become futile in thinking. We're unable to even have conversations that most cultures across the world would say, no, this is a simple thing in many ways. Jesus Christ came to rescue this world from Satan, sin, disease, death. He came into this world, God in the flesh. And Jesus came, and he came as a male. And the reason I say that is because he affirms the sex binary. He could have come as the person who was to represent the whole human race as some sort of hybrid human to represent both men and women, but he chose to uphold the fact that the image of God is male and female, and he came as a male. And when Jesus came, he came, and he lived a life as the eunuch from verse 12. He came and lived a life as a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. He withheld sexual relations. He didn't make his sexual identity or his sexual drives the biggest thing in his life. He upset people on all sorts of issues, on all sides of issues, including gender. He speaks of your biological ties being less important than your kingdom ties. He then goes to the cross, he dies for our sins, he dies for our infirmities, he dies, he dies for everything messed up and broken and wrong in this world, and he rises again, but he doesn't just return as the spirit man back to heaven, he has now fused himself to human flesh forever. Just consider that. God thinks human flesh is so good that he was willing to take it on forever. And that's where Jesus is now, in a body, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, like Gareth said. And all of us who've said yes to Christ, who've said yes to 
receiving what he did on the cross in the resurrection on our behalf, are heading towards the new creation that he promised. When he's going to come back, when he's going to rid this world of Satan, sin, and death, and there will be a very real bodily resurrection that all of us will participate in, where there will be no more sickness and no more disease and no more disability. Which story are you living in? Are you trying to hold both stories in tension? Because ultimately you've got to choose. One counters out the other. You can't hold the postmodern story and the Jesus story. And that's what I want to lay before us now. Here's a response towards some individual people. Sorry we've gone on a bit long. Big topic, big topic, guys. <laughs> Remember, when we come to responding to individuals, we can't, I can't deal with how we respond to school boards and all that kind of stuff. The question is not how do I love this, not do I love this person, but how do I love this person? And when it comes to people who are in the rapid onset gender dysphoria camp, they had no signs of stuff, it's broken out in the last couple of weeks in their life, they're identifying as pan-gender or genderqueer or something, and they possibly want to transition, here's some thoughts. When it comes to people in the rapid onset gender dysphoria camp, I want to urge us, let us reason, let us slow down, let us encourage prudence. Let's be clear about other options beyond the ideological push to see people transition quickly. And let's explore and take time to check out other mental health issues that may be around. Otherwise, we might completely misdiagnose people. I really believe, genuinely in my heart right now, for this next season of the church's life, next 10 years, that individual Christ followers can be a blessing to the world around us in this time. By, in a sense, recognizing the agenda, not being fooled by it, and being a, an alternative voice, an alternative voice of reason. To those who have genuine gender dysphoria, in a sense, we, 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 I wanna say similar things. We'd say exactly what we said to anyone who has an intersex condition. God loves you, we love you, Tell us what it's like to be you. Because all Christians understand a disconnect, right, between what we feel and what is true. If you've been a Christian for long enough, you know you're a child of God, but my goodness, I don't feel like a child of God right now. I know I'm blameless before the throne of Christ, but my goodness, I feel like a wretched whore. We feel that disconnect. And we're all waiting for the day when that disconnect is going to be gone forever when Jesus returns. If this person's not a Christ follower, just talk to them about Jesus and his story. We'll deal with details later. That's the, that's the first port of call. If you are a Christ follower and you're grappling with gender dysphoria, I want to urge us all to lovingly reason together from the scriptures and from God's wonderful creation. God has spoken over again about not being harsh with the body, not giving our body extreme mutilation. The, body, uh, the, the Bible speaks over and over again about wisdom, about prudence, about taking time, about going slow, especially in times of social pressure, no matter what they might be. Let's consider aligning the mind to the body, much like we would if we had a daughter or someone with anorexia. We would try and point them towards the truth, the let the subjective reality be conformed to the objective reality. That's how therapy has always worked. And let's journey together. Let me end by saying this. There's lots of people that we could be talking about today. 
Let's meet every single person as an individual. If you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. And once we get to know people, we can start to slowly figure out how we can pastorally respond.